0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, we come to you today confessing our weakness, our uncertainty, and we confess that if you fill us, we will be strong. And so we pray that you would purify us and make us resilient, open our eyes, and illuminate our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. Can you remember what things were like in February of 2020? To me, it seems like a long time ago and a world away Things are so different now, and it is very unlikely that our society is going to go back to what it was before the COVID pandemic, before we were unable to meet together for months, before the Black Lives Matter protests. In America, we imagine that life as we have experienced it will pretty much go on just as it has. But actually, we're not promised that at all. Probably the norm in world history has always been cultural and societal upheaval, the rising and falling of societies and nations. And the period of relative peace that we've experienced since the end of the Cold War is probably an anomaly in world history. But now, in almost every area of life, we're going through a great reset. And great resets are times of uncertainty and great crisis and instability and anxiety. Some of us are excited about the progress in the national conversation about race and our national history and wealth inequality. Some of us are concerned about the content and the tone and the context of that conversation. Some of us are concerned about the great increase of overt secularism and hostility toward the church, and we wonder whether there's going to be even a place for us at the table in the society that's coming into being. One thing we can say for sure, though, is that as our society is convulsing, no one is actually in control of what's happening. It's not as though there's some secret cabal that's pulling the strings and leading us to some preordained results. Politicians and protesters and pundits are not in control of what is happening, no matter how they posture. Mega corporations are not in control of what is happening. Only one is in full command of the Great Reset and its ultimate resolution in our society. And he is the one enthroned in heaven, the one of whom the psalmist today says, the heavens are yours and yours also the earth. That ought to be the confession on the lips of every Christian forever and always. The psalmist confesses you founded the world and all that is in it. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Great resets, when they happen, are confusing and they're scary, but they're most often understood in Scripture as the judgment of God upon societies. We can see that in our reading from Isaiah today. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The day of the Lord, as the prophets called this day, was a great reset. It's a day that scuttles the existing social order, which has become unsustainable and unjust and rebellious against God and destructive of human beings. The sources of that social decay are always complex because the roots of sin are complex. And the prophets, who see with the eyes of God, see the full dimensions of the rot that is set into society. And they begin to name evils that cut against all the political and ideological affiliations of a society. And when the day of the Lord comes, its source is unexpected, its onset is swift, and it is always a great reset. In these great resets, it's easy to feel out of control and to feel afraid. And that's why we are told to confess and to hold on to the reality that the heavens are yours and yours also the earth. God is in command of the international political order. God is in command of the destiny of the United States of America. God is in command of the future of the church, the future of Church of the Ascension. And God is in command of each of our individual destinies, our jobs, our families, everything. In the great reset, as Isaiah says, the Lord is humiliating the powers, humiliating the proud by shattering their expectations, shattering the illusion of control over the world. Now, this Great Reset has been somewhat unusual for the church. The church all over the world has been kept from business as usual. We've been kept from our normal programming. We've been kept from meeting. We've been kept from high profile visibility. And so the work of the church has become quiet, subdued, unseen, almost entirely off the 24-hour news cycle. It's been so quiet and so underground that people have wondered and even accused the church of not showing up in this crisis. Nothing could be further from the truth, my friends. The church's work has become the very important work of paying attention, of one-on-one connection, of prayer. We've been creatively shuffling our gatherings into online formats. But this crisis has also felt for many of us like a crisis for the church, Where is the church? What is it for if we're not visible, if we're not high profile, if we're not charging headlong into the world's cause du jour? but here's what I think both our readings from Isaiah and from the Gospel of Matthew have to teach us this morning. The church in crisis is also the church that is being prepared for renewal. As I was praying in preparation for this sermon this week, my sense was that the church is being asked to take the posture that Isaiah takes in our passage today. As the day of the Lord comes against Israel, Isaiah is told to enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. In other words, Isaiah is told to get out of the way, become quiet, become invisible, and observe. Isaiah is not at the head of the cavalry delivering the judgment of God to the proud. He's not reading tons of think pieces interpreting the sudden calamities around him. Rather, he's told to be still, to have his imagination purified, to be renewed in the sense of the holiness and the majesty and the character and the power of God. The reality is... That great resets don't necessarily engender renewal. Sometimes the church simply channels the anxiety of the culture around it and cowers. Sometimes the church comes back from crises weaker, more compromised, more accommodated to the culture around it. And so during this great reset, the church in America has been sidelined as an opportunity and an invitation to come back stronger. But what would it mean to come back stronger? It would mean to do what is necessary for our faith to become white hot. White hot faith precedes renewal. White-hot faith drives us to the end of ourselves, it drives us to our knees, crying out that the Holy Spirit would come down upon us, purify our hearts, purify the culture around us, and enable us to speak with power the words of hope, the words of Jesus, and that justice would roll down like rivers. White-hot faith precedes revival. So a couple of years ago, there was a pastor named Tyler Staten who was beginning to minister in Brooklyn. As he was prayer walking around the city, he heard the voice of the Lord say to him, "If you want to minister to the people of Brooklyn, you have to purify yourself of the idols of Brooklyn." I've been carrying this insight around with me for a couple of years now, wondering what what might it mean for us here at Ascension, here in Pittsburgh. What are the cultural idols that need to be deconstructed in us? What are the idols we bring from our own histories that need to be destroyed in us? What hard word from the Lord do we need to hear that would purify us so that we might be renewed rather than compromised? When we turn, from the, when we turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we see that unless we're cleansed of idolatry, there's no hope of following in the way of Jesus. Part of Jesus's ministry Part of the reason he came was to expose idolatry in everyone that his word reaches. He doesn't say this is a bug. He says it's a feature of his ministry. Jesus' words break open every institution, even the most intimate institution of the family, because it exposes what is in each of us. He does not come to bring peace, he says, but a sword. Now let's be clear on what Jesus is and is not saying when he says that. When Jesus says he comes to bring a sword, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says in chapter 49 of that book that when the suffering servant of the Lord comes, the Lord will make the mouth and the tongue of his servant like a sharpened sword. He will make the lips of the servant into a polished arrow which is concealed in the Lord's quiver. Jesus' ministry is not a ministry of armies and bloodshed. His is a ministry of words and of healing. He makes it quite clear, actually, in the Gospel of Matthew itself that physical swords have no place in his ministry. When he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Simon Peter attacks the guards that came to arrest him, Jesus says, put up your swords, Simon, no more of that. Anyone who takes up the sword is going to die by that same sword. But Jesus also says that his mouth is a sword. When he speaks the truth of God, it is a day of the Lord for Israel and for everyone who hears it. It cracks everyone open who hears it and exposes to the light of day what is inside of a person. To listen to Jesus is a reckoning with the power and the majesty of God. In word and in deed, Jesus shows that the truth is in fact always sharper and more exacting and more powerful than a sword. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his Nobel Peace Prize address, quotes a Russian proverb, One word of truth outweighs the world. One word of truth outweighs the world. This adage, in some sense, really sums up Jesus' ministry. Jesus' words cut deeper than any sword could, and they expose the idols that are in every person to the light of day. He says in the passage just before ours today, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 10, he says, "...because of his ministry, which is continued in the ministry of all of his disciples, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known." It will become known, Jesus says, by what happens when we encounter resistance for living in the way of Jesus. If we are compromised and riddled with idolatry, we will hide in anxiety and fear and shame. If we are compromised by idolatry, our faith will be fragile. We ourselves will be fragile and not resilient. We will not follow Jesus into the loss of reputation. We will not follow him into poverty and even to the cross, which he says is necessary to be willing and able to do when the time comes. Jesus says that how those who respond to Jesus and how we respond when others reject us for Jesus' sake is a primary test that exposes idolatry. Do you hang on to him in those moments or do you not? And so this passage is a warning. Do what is necessary to be purified from idolatry so that we can become vessels filled with the Spirit and ready to serve Christ in all things. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not depreciating activism or justice work at all in saying these things. All of us, I hope, want a more just society. But activism and justice work are not enough to make a life. If we seek our life there, we will lose our life just as surely as we will lose our life if we're pursuing pleasure or ambition. These things are not sufficient in themselves to build a life. Justice work without life in Jesus is missing the one thing necessary. It is just noise and frenzy and destructive heat without light. The Catholic activist Dorothy Day said that contemplation, stillness, and being filled with Jesus are the only possible sources of strength for authentically Christian engagement with society. Contemplation is not hashtag white silence. To contemplate is to grow still with a purpose. It is to be purified from idolatry so that we can build, not just destroy, so that we can co-labor with Christ. The Holy Spirit is inviting us to enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty. Our lower profile in this cultural moment is an opportunity to become quiet, to become invisible, and to observe. It is our moment to have our imaginations purified, to consider what we have devoted our lives to and whether that is what God wants us to have devoted our lives to. It's a moment when we're being asked Do we really believe this stuff? Is this really our hope? Is it worth banking everything on Jesus? And we're invited to ask, what are the idols of America? What are the idols of Pittsburgh that we need to be purified from so that we can minister to the people of Pittsburgh? My family and I are supposed to go to Texas this week to visit friends and family, and we've really been struggling over the last couple of weeks of whether to go. Texas leads the nation in COVID cases and I just read that Houston's ICUs have filled up they've reached their capacity so hospitals are about to start having to make those hard decisions about who to treat. We're just we weren't really sure what to do. I think we're going to go, but we weren't sure what to do. And I think that our uncertainty is a microcosm of where we are as a culture. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond in this great reset? How are we supposed to be on the right side of history? The great Wendell Berry once wrote, it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. I love this quote. Our minds have been baffled, church. And it is time for our minds to be employed. It is indeed time to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to not be conformed any longer to the idols of this world and above all, the idol of distraction. We need to be purified and transformed in our minds so that we are able to discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Our stream has been impeded. And it is time, my dear and beloved Church of the Ascension, for us to sing, though not here in this space today. (laughs) And It is time for us to sing and to cry out for Christ to come and give us new hearts and to break strongholds in us and in Pittsburgh and in our nation. That's the only hope for us, for our nation, for the world. It is moments of crisis that force us to return to our story and begin to take it more seriously than we ever have. When the Great Reset runs its course, we will come back, and the only question is whether we will come back weaker and compromised and afraid, or whether we will come back stronger because we have white-hot faith and a hungering and a thirsting for renewal and revival. This is my last Sunday as your associate rector. I wanna thank you. It has been such a privilege to serve you. And I wanna charge you this morning, don't waste this opportunity. Let this crisis be the Holy Spirit's invitation to you to draw you into prayer. Let this crisis be the Spirit's invitation to be separated from the idols of this culture. Let this crisis be the Spirit's invitation to blow your faith into white-hot intensity because white-hot faith precipitates great movements of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit is waiting for in us. The Lord works through his church to renew the face of his creation, to draw the nations to himself, to bind up every wound, and to rebuild the walls of every community, and to bring the hope of the resurrection to all. But only if his people want it. When I look at social media, what I see is a great deal of preaching about what we should and shouldn't do. I see a great deal of self-righteous lecturing and self-defensiveness on Facebook and Twitter. I see a great deal of hashtag activism. Some of this is good. Some of it is a corrective to a past in which people have been silent when they should have spoken. Evil things have lingered long in this country and in the church of Jesus Christ that are being exposed just as Jesus said they would. This is part of the Great Reset. This is a day of the Lord. But friends, I have a concern, because what is needed is true hope, true solidarity, a willingness to be in for the long haul of kingdom work, of restoring what has been lost, and rebuilding the walls of our church and of a society. And this isn't going to come from our own resources, This isn't going to come by raising people's consciousness on social media. If that's all this is, then mark my words, all that will happen is a tearing down and not a building up. It will result in more fragility and more anxiety. The result will be more cynicism and jadedness and despair and resentment. What is needed is purity of heart and mind. What is needed is for us to cry out to Jesus to come to the end of ourselves and our own resources, to ask Jesus that he would give us the resilience of the gospel, which can only come by being cleansed and then filled by Jesus. We need to lose ourselves so that he may find us. The people of God must be purified of the idols of this nation and of this city if we want to minister to the people of this city. We need a faith that is deeper, more rooted, and more established. And so I invite you not to waste this opportunity. Lean into prayer and contemplation. Be still before God with a purpose. Lean into scripture. Learn your faith more profoundly than you ever have before now. Lean into the fellowship of the saints. Lean into the preaching of the word and the Eucharist and let the Lord feed you and fill you. We don't need a killer app. We don't need the next new fad. We need the old ways, the ways in which people have been shaped into the way of Jesus for millennia. This is the path to transformation, to renewal, to restored discipleship, to revival in our church and in our city. Lose yourself so that the Lord may find you. Amen.